Hey, in context, friends, we need your help. Between now and March 30th, we have a survey that is out, and we need you to complete it. We want your feedback. We want to know why you listen to Michael Easley in context, what you want to hear more of, less of, and anything else you want to tell us to help guide us in the future of Michael Easley in context. So right now, if you go to michaelincontext.com slash survey, you will be entered to win a package including a $50 Amazon gift card, Ken Boa's Handbook to Prayer, and Michael's book on prayer interludes. Again, your feedback is so valuable to us and we would love it if you took our survey from now until March 30th at michaelincontext.com slash survey. Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Michael Easley is available. At the tone, please record your message. Welcome to Michael Easley in Context. We are on episode 12 of our Ask Dr. E series. That's pretty crazy, Dad. It is. When you sent that out, I went, a dozen. Hey. <laughs> now we should you know, get a hamburger. I mean, that, that means you've answered like 60 plus questions probably, which is so fun. I don't know about the number of questions, but it's fun doing it. And we have so many questions in our queue, but that doesn't mean you should not email us. Email us or call us if you've got a question that you want to hear Michael answer. Especially good questions, you know. (laughs) (laughs) There's no such thing as a bad question. Nah, maybe there is. (laughs) You're so rude. I'm just kidding. I know you are. We have some great questions that are basic and good, and people are asking the right things. Yeah, they're great questions. And what's fun, at least on my end for Ask Dr. E., is today's a perfect example. We came in, I thought we were answering these five or six questions, and my dad sits down and is like, no, no, I worked on these instead. So you never know. I might even email you back if you email us a question and say, we'll answer this on the next show, and then we won't. But we'll get to it, I promise. <laughs> we'll but, try to get to most of them. Yeah, we no, we do. We do. Yeah. And it's fun to see what questions you gravitate towards and want to go down. So let's just get into it. So There's a pastor named Josh who wrote in, and I'm going to synthesize his email a little bit, but basically he's been meeting with a guy in his community who's an atheist, and they have been getting coffee you know, continuously having lots of lively discussions, as he puts it. And this man pointed this pastor to a series of articles he wrote concerning what he called, quote unquote, the false prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And in these writings, he points to some of the more obscure prophecies and posits that history nowhere mentions their fulfillment. So he comes to the conclusion that therefore all Old Testament prophets are proven false, Jesus is a fraud, and Christianity has been exposed as a sham. Bada boom. Yeah, so, there we, ha- there we you are. So they're continuing to wrestle over other things, but he said this guy just keeps coming back to this idea. The prophecies are false, therefore everything is false. And so he wanted to know Dr. Michael Jerome Easley's thoughts. You never mention my middle name. <laughs> <laughs> That's a guarded secret. Okay, That's a state okay, secret. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. No, you can leave it. I'm kidding. It's probably out there on, you know, my social security is probably online. Who knows, right? It's probably on your wiki page, your Wikipedia. <laughs> That's pretty scary. Well, okay. Number one, Josh, kudos to you for pursuing this friend. That just makes my heart sing that you're meeting with someone who's got good, hard questions. Secondly, I'm not an apologetic guy in the sense that I don't do apologetics. That's not my forte. It never has been. I've never argued anyone into the kingdom yet. Uh, I have great friends like Ron Rhodes that I go to when I get into specifics. And by the way, We'll probably get Ron on sometime. Yeah, that'd be great. And we've used him many times before. He's such a great resource. But 
the reason I gravitated toward this question, Hannah and Josh, was number one, when we're talking about prophecies, understanding them, unfulfilled prophecies or false prophecies, that's a bit of a bottomless hole to go down. And, and what I mean by that is we can't go through every prophetic utterance and come with a definitive fulfillment. He's yeah. right. Some of this is yet to be determined. And I often talk about two mountains that when you envision a hill and then it goes down into a valley and there's a larger hill and we're on this one side of the valley looking up and we just see one hillside. And when you get to the top of that first hill, you go, oh, there's another hill over there in a valley. That's John the Baptist looking at Jesus, for example. So some of the prophecies, they did not completely understand how they were going to be fulfilled in Christ. But since I don't have a list of the precise ones he's you know, challenging, let's set that aside. Not that they aren't good questions that deserve good answers, but I want to address a more important issue. I had a friend, and I've shared this story before, I think, who was big into evolution and Darwinism and had read extensively about that. And we were meeting over the months and probably a couple of years, and we would argue collegially creation versus evolution. And I'm fairly good at defending a literal six-day creation, much to the horror of my old earth friends. Uh, I believe in a literal six-day creation, and the earth is not millions and millions of years old. And, of course, he thought I was a fool. Get in line. <laughs> but the point was we had a conversation about it, and I could take him to the Bible, and I could show him some passages and what I want to say third, don't underestimate the intrinsic power of the word and the power of God's Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Because your relational capital with your friend and just having this conversation means so much more than you or me or anyone having the right answer. Because I could probably conclude by your email, if you answered these 10 questions, he'd have 10 more. Yeah. And he continued to dismantle things. So what you and I have to do is step back and say, I have a great opportunity to talk about God's word, and I get to trust God's spirit to work in our friend's heart. So we could have, you know, he lived, he died, he was buried, he came back from the grave, and there's thousands of eyewitnesses notwithstanding. And we have the most reliable document on the planet, bar none, called the Bible. And they're going to dissect it and disagree and disregard it. That's where we are. Mm -hmm. So you and I don't have to have all the answers, but we know the one who is God. We know the one who is the answer to the real issue. Lastly, fourth, and again, commend you so much for your relationship with him, Josh, but I would say I wish more Christians understood what you're doing in the sense that you and I have a sphere of influence of people around us. I've got neighbors that I'm getting to know in a community we've only lived in about three years now, and I'm loving getting to know my neighbors, and there's no agenda. We're just becoming friends, hanging out on the porch on a nice day, and talking about all kinds of things, and they know I'm a preacher, which is like, you know, <laughs> uh, I'm going to sell them something, right? I'm a life insurance guy, and so you have to work through that, but that said, it's not hard. Just be a nice person and a friend and look for opportunities to turn the conversation into a spiritual conversation and ask God to use you. Hmm. And the last thing, I guess I said the last on number four, the last thing is maybe there's a point where you tell him, you know what, man, I love these conversations. I love and appreciate you. I love time with you. I don't know that I can answer all your questions. I can't. But what I can tell you is that Christ loves you. He cares about you. 
He's real. He helps us. He helps us in ways that I can't really explain to you, Mm. but I know he wants a relationship with you. And this is what that looks like. And you find your words and your way of saying that to compel this guy in a loving, kind, gentle way to come to know Christ. And then let's see what Christ does with him. Mm. Mm. That's good, Dad. Reminds me of, we've got a friend, I'm not going to name him because I'm not 100% sure this is his story, but his testimony goes, I mean, he was in a similar relationship with a believer. He had so many questions, just couldn't tie up every loose end. And finally, the guy that was the believer looked at him one day and said, here's the deal. You're never going to have every question answered. So based on what you know now, what is stopping you from putting your faith in Christ? And that was the turning point for him of like, okay, I know enough and I can believe enough of this. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And because we all are going to wrestle for the rest of our lives with so many questions that will be unanswered. Well, it's just like the literal creation, six day creation or old earth That's theory right. or intelligent design or whatever you want to talk about. You know, I have Christian friends that think I'm a total idiot because I believe in a literal six day creation. I still think they're saved. They're confused. <laughs> they think I'm wrong. So, but that's not an essential to salvation. I think it's important. Sure. The other thing, and we'll talk about this one of their questions that we have in front of us today, is where I grew in my own relationship with Christ and how things came into focus later. And, oh, I didn't understand that issue at all, and I didn't understand what it meant. And now as a believer, there's a passage in um, 1 Corinthians 2. It's an interesting passage because I rarely hear it appealed to. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 toward the end of the chapter, and he says, now, this is verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining the spiritual thoughts with the spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And that word literally means no power to know something. There's no power to know it. They're spiritually appraised. And I use the illustration, you've probably heard me say this a thousand times, Hannah, of a diamond. And when your mom and I were engaged in courting, and I had a friend at college who was a gemologist, and he could get diamonds at cost, That's always what we want, right? So uh, Tommy brought some diamonds and showed them to me, and he had a little eight-power loop, and he looked at them and said, you know, what is it, color, cut, clarity? Mm -hmm. And uh, he had probably 15 of them, and he picked three out. What do you think of these? I don't know what I'm looking at. Right. And so I said, okay, how much are those? And this one was so much, and this one. And it was like down to like, you know, $1,368 or $2,598. And I go, where's the price tag, Tommy? Yeah. And I said, how do you know that's what it's worth? And he leaned back kind of in disgust. And he goes, Michael, I'm a gemologist. I appraise stones for a living. (laughs) You dope. That's what he wanted to say. But what a great illustration that when you have the credentials and you've been trained to appraise something, Paul says he who is spiritual can appraise all things, but he who is not spiritual cannot understand them. And so the good news of coming to Christ is not that the Bible is meaningless apart from the spirit. It's just you see things and you understand things. You're able to put value to it. Mm -hmm. 
And this isn't some mystical, ooh, you know. This is, oh, I see what this means now and how the value of a creation account, the value of a spiritually-minded man versus a carnally-minded man. So anyway, I think it's important. And hopefully we're all always growing, right? Yeah. We're not living on yesterday. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so a while back I had posted on your Instagram account just a general call. What do you want to hear Dr. E talk about on Ask Dr. E? And someone replied simply four words, women and the Bible. So Michael, <laughs> what do you want to talk about when it comes to women? And I mean, you know, no idea what she talking about preaching. Was she talking about leadership? Was she talking about? I don't know. So, I don't either. So I know. So you're just going <laughs> to. Well, I had a short thought on this one and I thought, you know, uh, I'm going to give you three titles, actually maybe four, that are very different books, but it would be a great start. And all of these, with the exception of one, is a real simple, easy approach. Jean Hendricks wrote a book called Women of Honor. Mm-hmm. And she looked at a number of women in the Bible and wrote, it's a very easy to read account of these key women and their role in scripture. If you're a John MacArthur fan, he's written a little more involved book called 12 Extraordinary Women. And it's a very good read for a study. And then Herbert Lockler, L-O-C-K-Y-E-R, we'll have it in the show notes. Herbert Locker made a great contribution called All the Women of the Bible. Hmm. And he goes through and chronicles everyone and gives you the references and where they occur. And then finally, Mary Evans has written a book that's very easy to read called Women in the Bible. So Gene Hendricks, John MacArthur, Herbert Lockler, and Mary Evans. And what I would do is I would get two or three women friends yeah. And I'd say, let's read one chapter a week over coffee, over Zoom, yep. and just talk about the book, and it'll rock your world yep. of women and their key role in Scripture. You know, I just taught through some of the Gospels in our big book series, and I was reminded of Lydia's role mm. in Ephesus, mm-hmm. and she was a businesswoman. Yep. And we don't know the detail, but I'm wondering that they met in Lydia's home, yep. which in the first century... They didn't have houses like we do, obviously, but they had courtyards. Mm -hmm. And so let's say there were 50 or 100 people or maybe even more. She had the largest home and a businesswoman who was able to, we might say, underwrite that ministry. So there are key women in Scripture that God uses. Unfortunately, uh, we don't talk about it enough, and sometimes we just don't have a lot of information. Sure, sure. That's great. Okay, another Instagram question and answer response, whatever you want to call it. Someone just asked, how do I even get started reading the Bible? And I think that's a great question that a lot of people are wondering. (laughs) And it's a new year. And how many times have you started a Bible reading program that you finished? Oh, that I finished? I was like, let's see, I'm 36. (laughs) So I probably started 30, 30, you know? Yeah, I don't know. It's a great question. I remember. I finished a lot. (laughs) (laughs) She said proudly. I remember Robert Murray McShane's, back when I was in college, it was printed on this green paper that was like eight and a half by 17 folded over in like a thin envelope size. And like the font was like six point font. (laughs) And you had to check the yeah. line. Oh, I, yeah. And there was an Old Testament reading uh-huh. and then a New Testament reading. And the cool thing about McShane's plan was you went through the Old Testament once, the New Testament, and Psalms twice. Oh, that is cool. During a year. Now, it took me That's in those days about 45 minutes a day. Yeah. One year, I. <laughs> My friend, Charlie Boyd, I'll tell you, first of all, one year I said, I'm going to read through the Bible because Bob Tolson read through the Bible every month. Wow. Every month. So I thought, well, I can What do you think that is? Three hours a day? Uh, Four hours a day? For a fast reader? Yeah. 
Yeah. That's great. So what I said was, okay, I'm going to do it in three months. Yeah. And I broke it down. I, I put it on a this. four by six card and I about killed myself. <laughs> and, and Charlie Boyd says, why are you in such a hurry? <laughs> so anyway, Charlie, we have on the In Context website from last year mm-hmm. a whole bunch of plans from Crossway. And so we'll yeah. put a link up for you to find those. And if you're listening, you can just search Bible reading plans on In Context and you'll find them. Let me say this. Number one, this is a common question. Don't be ashamed or embarrassed. I'm glad you asked. Number two. Look at the plans on our site and look at some online plans. This is a tablet and phone world. There are innumerable reading programs that you can put on your phone or your tablet if you're a Logos user. By the way, Faith Life is free for anyone to use, and they have Bible reading plans, and you can adjust it on uh, how many days you want to go through, what books you want to go through, how long you want to read it. Is it six months or a year? And you can play with that, and it will remind you when you're behind, which is always helpful, right? Third, because people struggle with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, oh, man, and if they get to Leviticus, they're here with numbers, and that's like they stop. So what I tell people is rather than feel guilty or overwhelmed, step back and ask yourself, what do you love to study? What are you interested in reading? Yeah. For example, I mentioned earlier, I had a friend that loved evolution. And in fact, when I was a young junior high kid, I held to a view called theistic evolution. Yep. And for those that might not be familiar with that term, it simply means that evolution, the way Darwin explained it, was real. But theistic is that God explains it in the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. That's not taking away from the creation account. It's just saying this is how he did it was through evolution. Now, that's a very simpleton view of how to explain it. But nevertheless, I held to that. So when I came to Christ and I was confronted with creation, I wait, 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 wait. I knew about theistic evolution mm-hmm. even as a junior high kid. So I read a lot of books about creation and evolution and Christian's take on evolution. And that was probably about, I'm going to say a good two years, Hannah, before I moved to understanding creation yeah. as an act of God making man in his image. Why am I giving you that story? Because that interested me. Right. And I was reading things as well as the Bible putting this together. Mm-hmm. And then when I read the Genesis 1 and 2 account and Colossians 1, I was blown away. Mm-hmm. Colossians 1 says Christ is the one who did Genesis 1 and 2. Yep. So what's your interest? Is it something like that? Is there a story that you are intrigued about that, you know, I've always wanted to know about Rahab. Or I've always wanted to know about Jericho. Or I've always wanted to know about Dan and Lion's Den. Read that passage. Maybe it's something more current like marriage and family and parenting. If you got young kids at home, you're scrambling. How do I raise these boys and girls to love each other, much less God? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a book called Proverbs, mm-hmm. and you can read one proverb a day. Mm-hmm. And in a month, you'll have read all 31, if you have 31 days. And on the shorter days, you just pick it up. You can read a chapter in Proverbs in, what, four to five minutes? Oh, yeah. Tops? Yeah. Now, my problem is I get stuck I was on the third sp- verse. Well, I'm you an could hour. spend 30. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, now another one is, let's say, uh, some theology issues. Predestination. Election. Eternal security. You've heard the phrase, once saved, always saved? Well, how do you know that? That's a good question. So... What I would suggest on questions that you might have about the Bible and then to develop a reading plan would be go to something like Bible.org 
or Faith Life. Or, you know, you could use Google or Quant or Safari, whatever you use for your search engine, and put in passages on family in mm-hmm. the Bible, passages on parenting in the Bible. Now, <laughs> let me forewarn you, you might get some bad results, <laughs> and you might get some overwhelming results. It's just a place to start, okay? That's all I'm saying. If you have something that's interesting to you, and you don't know where to start, you can use any of those tools, Bible.org, Faith Life, or even just a search engine search, verses in the Bible that talk about blank, and you'll find a good list. And then start whittling away. Another method that would maybe be a little different than just reading the Bible, either chronologically or the way it's sewn in our books, would be to pick up Living by the Book. And mm. this is a resource we have yeah. pushed again and again on in context because it changed my life. We've done it with small groups over the years. It's a book and a workbook. And again, get two or three friends and do it together. That accountability can be fun. We're going to do two chapters in the workbook this week. I guess the workbook's one chapter a day. And they do a great job. Bill Hendricks helped with the workbook. And what they do is it's a blank page with questions. And it says, read this passage. First, it says, plan to spend 20 minutes or plan to spend 30 minutes on this exercise. Okay, this is what I'm going to do for 20 minutes. Then it says, read these verses, then make observations, record them here. And it walks you through a systematic way to learn how to study the Bible methodically, living by the book by Hendricks and Hendricks. The textbook that goes along with it is just a fabulous resource you can go back to again and again and again. Mine's marked up and falling apart. And it gives you tools for how to read the Bible. So, and summarily, then I would say, think of this book as the mind of God in print. Hmm. It is sufficient for all we need for a life of faith and following Jesus Christ. So why wouldn't we want to read it? Why wouldn't we want to get lost in it? Why wouldn't we want to study things that we hadn't studied before. And I would also add, and something I do personally, is I try to do something new each year. Maybe I'm going to study one book a month. You've done that on your podcast, Hannah. You go through a book a month. I have a friend that studies a book a year. It doesn't matter. What will keep you motivated, will keep you interested. Remember, you don't have to, you get to. It's not that you should, it's that you can. And you will never, ever waste time Mm. with your nose in a book. Mm. So read. Can I give my Hannah Seymour answer to this Absolutely. question? Absolutely. <laughs> that would probably be better than... <laughs> no, no. But I get this question so much too. And our audiences are definitely different. But what I always tell women who write me asking this question is you need a plan, a place, and people. And plan is just all those examples you gave. But you need to pick something and decide this is what I'm going to do. Because we fail when we just go, oh, I want to start reading the Bible. I don't know what to do. So I'm going to crack it open today in some random place. And then there's no... You just need mm-hmm. a plan. Mm-hmm. The place, meaning a place in your calendar and a physical place. It doesn't have to be exactly the same time every day, but if you have never made a habit of reading the Bible on a daily basis and you don't say, I'm going to do this every morning at 6 a.m. on my couch, or I'm going to do it during my lunch break. I did lunch break Bible reading for years as a young professional. Or I know some friends that love to do it at, you know, right before going to bed, but not in their bed. You know, it's got to be my home office, whatever. But you've got to set a time and space and place of like, this is when I'm going to do it 90% of the time. And then people, again, if you have not made a habit of reading the Bible before, it is, I mean, it's helpful. It's kind of crucial that you have even just one other person. They don't even have to be reading the same thing you're reading, but just saying, hey, I want to start doing this more you feel the same way. Could we just check in once a week and say, 
hey, what are you learning this? What have mm-hmm. you read mm-hmm. and what has God taught you this week Absolutely. through that? Yep. But just you need a plan, you need a place, and you need people to help you and come alongside you. I love that, Hannah. That's great. And I think the hard part for so many people is that routine just seems daunting. It seems like exercise yeah. or dieting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was Luther, and I'm going to somebody correct me who listens to this, but I think he, some young seminarian asked him about, you know, how he studied and what he did. And I think if my memory serves, he spent four hours in the morning in devotions and he got up very early, like three or four in the morning. And one of the students said, how do you get anything done? You know? Yeah. And he said, I found I get more done after that than I would if I didn't. Yeah. There's no spiritual algorithm. It's if then theology, but I just think we underestimate how important it is to be centered. And I'm going to put a plug in for a text. I know, you know me, I use all the software. I love Logos. I use it every day and some days for six hours a day. But I have to do my devotions and reading in a physical book with a pen and a ruler because I'll get lost. Mm -hmm. I'll click, 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 and I'll Mm -hmm. be off in the weeds. So maybe you can do it on your phone or on your tablet or in your notebook, I need to do it with a book in my lap. One of the things I was going to say, and you provoked me on this, was the creativity piece of it. Because when you do your reading plans, it's creative mm-hmm. how you put those things out on Instagram mm-hmm. and your on your uh, on your social media. Hendricks told us to get the Manila folders and open them up flat and do a book of the Bible chart hmm. on each one hmm. and just start building them. This, of course, was in a day when computers were not yet available yeah. for individuals. And I don't know where they are, but I had every book of the Bible with the manila folder open and I would put in Genesis and mm-hmm. I would make observations and key events mm-hmm. and chapter. And yeah, you know, it's not like you're turning it in to frame it. You can scratch it right. out and start a new one. But for some people that visual, like a graphic yeah. is really helpful yeah. as they read to put it on another piece of paper and go, Oh, there's creation. There's the fall. There's the flood. Yeah. There's the Abrahamic covenant. There's, you know, walk through that book yeah. and, Anything like that, if you're a creative person, that will get you going. Is but you were in one of our small groups. We would break up the group in three rooms uh-huh. and give them an assignment. And I'd uh-huh. say, okay, you have 20 minutes. Make every observation you can, and then I make a little chart. And yeah. I'd walk around the house nagging everybody. Yeah. And then we had one person present it, and it was fun. People loved it. Well, so, so anything like that that will get you out of this, sit down and read the Bible, or you're a bad person. Totally. And you were right. It was Martin Luther, at least the quote that is attributed to him, which, you know, sometimes those are wrong, but I'm pretty sure. And the quote is, I have so much to do today that I'm going to need to spend three hours in prayer in order to be able to get it all done. Yeah. What a different perspective than we have. There's a book uh, by E.M. Bounds, actually several books, but Power Through Prayer and Mm -hmm. Purpose in Prayer. Mm -hmm. And he tells the story, I think it's of a guy named William Sangster who wore grooves in the hardwood floor next to his desk where he knelt so often. Wow. I'm thinking it's really soft floors or bony knees or both. I don't know. (laughs) Wow. And then the other one was uh, Tozer, who kept a jumpsuit on the back of his pastor office door. And he would come in and take off his, you know, they wore vests in those days. He'd take off his suit coat and put on the jumpsuit and lay prostrate on his office floor and pray. Yeah. Who is the founder of the Methodist? John Did, Wesley. John Wesley. I'm pretty sure it was John Wesley's mom. I think he was like one of 12 kids. Yep. And he has a story about her that she 
wore, I think she just always had an apron on, you know, just that era and cooking and cleaning and taking care of the kids. And she would flip her apron over her head <laughs> to pray. And that's how her children knew, like if they looked they over and mom, mom's got her apron over her head and she's praying. And that was, I mean, I he it. just said all the time I'd look over and I knew my mom was talking with the Lord at that moment. And wow. I love that image because I think about how, you know, as a mom of two little boys and crazy. I mean, I can't even imagine 12, but I just, think you should try that with your two well, boys. I thought about just say, putting a dish towel on my head. When mom has an apron on her head, you have to be quiet. <laughs> dish, just grabbing the dish yeah, towel from she's, the She's talking hand. to God. You better watch out. Okay. A question we get, I mean, monthly, weekly, all the time, one in four, that might be an exaggeration, but everyone wants to hear you talk about the doctrine of election. And we've answered this before, but we're going to take another stab because everyone needs to hear well you have to hear something eight times before you even begin to comprehend and retain it right so at least let's go it, doctrine it, of election it's sort of like teaching too uh yeah it's you know that's the one cool thing about see if you teach a bible study you learn more mm-hmm. than if you just sit and listen just as a little shameless provocation to get you i think you. that's one of the reasons i really love teaching yeah well then you learn it i learned so much more all right let's start here there's a whole glossary of terms but in reviewing, and I literally have 20-some pages that I've accumulated in this file folder, and it grows. I think on my computer, I probably have 100 documents. Not to accumulate documents, but is there a way to say it mm-hmm. that helps people? Mm-hmm. Let's start at the beginning. God chose mm-hmm. the nation Israel. True. He chose Abraham, and let's start with him. Adam, of course, is his creation and his image, but he chose a man named Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham is not a God-fearing Jewish man. He would be in the Chaldean deities. His father is still Terah, T-R-H, was his father, who was a moon worshiper. So Abraham, descending from Adam, has no relationship, no knowledge, no connection to this Yahweh, Elohim, Adonai, and God picks him, and he chooses him to be the father of all nations. And he, Sarai will be Sarah, Abram, Abraham, and they're going to have innumerable number of children. Well, they only have one, Hmm. not mentioned uh, Ishmael right now. Isaac is their only child. Well, how is this counting the sands of the sea was the promise. God chose Abraham. He chose Isaac. We talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We talk about the patriarchs. We talk about Joseph. So these men were chosen, these families were chosen by God. So right there, just stop before you think about all the, you know, the tripwires about he chooses some and sends some to hell and it's not fair. He chose Abraham, not because he was better than anybody. He chose Noah, not because he was better than anybody. In fact, the text is so powerful there. He says, Noah found favor with God. People say, oh, he was living better than anyone else. No, the text says God gave him favor. Hmm. We don't have any reason in the Bible to think that Noah was more righteous than other people. His righteousness was because he obeyed God when God chose him to build this ark. So go through your Old Testament and look at the prophets who are chosen, and many of them are reluctant prophets. Mm. Look at Jonah. He's chosen to go preach to Nineveh. It goes the wrong way. (laughs) The, The only one who is somewhat willing is Isaiah, and that's after he realizes his sinfulness, and the angel brings the coal uh-huh. and a tongue onto his lips uh-huh. to, to symbolize forgiving his sin. So we have this story that we overlook. God chose a nation. He chose individuals to be his chosen people. So were they elect? Yes. Yeah. Were they predestined? 
Yes. And so right then and there, you have to you know, wheel back on your biblical theology before you get into the naughty parts of it. Now, the second one, and I always turn, I remember having a guy back at Virginia when we were living there come down to me, and he was so mad at me because I talked about election and predestination. And he has big Bible in front of me, threatening me. And I said, you got your Bible there. I said, open to Ephesians chapter 1. So he returns to Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to turn there too. And he said, I said, okay, I want you to read a couple verses here, starting in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And let me just stop there and say, if you're a Christian, that verse should stop you in your tracks. Mm. You have every spiritual blessing not some, not enough to get you there, every one of them. Yeah. And we whine about what we don't have. That's for free. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Stop, drop, and roll. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What does that mean if it doesn't mean election? Now, it continues with a purpose that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Not because we were better, not because Noah was better, not because Abraham was better. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to adoption. So I had this man read it. I go, what does that mean? I don't know, but it doesn't mean predestination. <laughs> well, they just don't want to. They don't accept it, and the reason they don't want to, in part, is because experientially they know people who maybe were good people and didn't know Christ. Mm -hmm. They themselves are unsure of their own relationship with Christ. Mm -hmm. It seems like it's an Armenian view that God is going to pick certain people who are better than, and they keep that salvation as long as they're good. Mm. So we get into loss of salvation. But you really need to go no further than Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 5, in my opinion. Going down to verse 11, he continues this thought all through chapter 1. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. So, and then he'll continue to talk about that we're sealed in verse 13 with the Holy Spirit of promise. So we were chosen before the foundation of the world. We're predestined and adopted as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So I don't know how you get around not understanding the election and the doctrine of election when it comes to that. Now, there are objections. Well, I mean, let's go to John 3.16. Whosoever believes in him. So that seems like a universal, any like Christ came and died for all, whosoever may believe. What do we do with some of these other verses that seem... So we don't want to get too far into limited versus unlimited atonement. Yeah. But I believe that the offer of salvation is universal. Yeah. And... Yet we know not everyone is going to come to Christ. True. So my Reformed friends say, no, Michael, you're wrong. Only the Christ elect. Christ died for the elect. Only the elect. Yeah, I don't like that. And Well, intellectually, <laughs> I agree with what they're saying, but I think it misses some of the corpus of Scripture that says, whosoever will. So yeah. 
what I like to say, and I'm not the only one, theologians that hold this position, the offer is universal, yeah. but only the elect are going to respond. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't know who the elect are. Right. Jesus did not say, go and preach to the elect. That's right. He didn't say, go and find the elect. That's right. He didn't say, go and find those I've chosen. He said, make disciples of all, all. ethnos, all ethnic groups, all people yeah. groups. Go out, do the work of the evangelist, Paul told the young Timothy. So election doesn't exempt us from sharing Christ with people. You've heard me use this illustration many, many times. It's attributed to Alan Redpath. It's attributed to J. Vernon McGee. I've done homework. In fact, if you know, let me know because I have done homework on this and can't find it. I think Redpath is the oldest reference, but it's the arch illustration. And that all of humanity is going to hell mm-hmm. and this huge traffic, walking. We're all the walking dead. We're all walking to hell. And over to the side of our life, at some point, there's this arch. And on the front of the arch, it says, whosoever will. Mm-hmm. And some go and walk through that arch. Mm-hmm. They responded to the call. Sometime later, they look back on the arch, and it says, Ephesians 1, 3, chosen before the foundation of the world. And the way I like to expand that illustration is to say, the offer is available to all, but the doctrine of election only has application for the Christian. Mm-hmm. The doctrine of election has no application to a person that doesn't know Christ. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think my Reformed friends get it wrong. When they say he only died for the elect and it's a limited juncture to just those people. I understand that intellectually, but I can't get away from the offer of salvation. God is not going to relegate people to hell. And this goes into what some call double predestination. And Paul would address this inferentially in Romans chapter 9, where he's talking about the potter and the clay. Verse 20, this whole argument in chapter 9 is God's sovereign election versus man's reasoning. That's what 9 is about. How can God be sovereign in his election of people? And how does man reason his way through this thing? And so he's walking through this whole argument, and he quotes from the Old Testament in verse 15. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy, which I agree. My Reformed friends are right on this. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, which is interesting, God's talking to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So Pharaoh is a puppet. God's going to use him for a purpose. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? And what they're saying there, what Paul's, it's called an interlocutor, this objection. So wait a minute. If he chose Pharaoh to kill him and to use him for that reason, then. How is that Pharaoh's fault? How is that Pharaoh? Yeah, exactly. And Paul answers, that's our question. You say back to God? Yeah. Don't miss his answer. On the contrary, verse 20, who are you, O man, that answers back to God? Yeah. This is hubris. Yeah. Who do you think you are to impugn God's character to say that he chose Pharaoh to destroy him, to make a point mm-hmm. to God's people? And I would put parentheses, even if that were true, the interlocutor has no right to shake his fist at God and said, then who finds mercy? How's God fair? And then he continues, The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me this way? Or does the potter have the right over the clay to make the same lump one vessel for honorable use 
and another for common use. What if God, and here's the big verse, verse 22, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand. So he's prepared beforehand. That's election and predestination. But the point is to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, the elect. In other words, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to fall on your face and on your knees and say, why did he choose me? Because mm-hmm. I'm no better than anybody else. I can't claim that I'm better than a Pharaoh. I can't claim that I'm better than a murderer or a thief or a rapist or you know, a criminal of any capital offense. Uh, we're not. So the problem is we co-mingle the doctrine of election with the idea of free will and man's choice. So we mix these all together and say, stop. The call is universal, whosoever will. The end result is, yes, only the elect are going to respond to mm-hmm. that call. But the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, has no application for men and women, children who don't know Christ. It's non sequitur. We don't talk about it. Are you elect? You know, are you chosen? Right, How right, do you know? Right. We need to find out if you're elect. No, right. you need to share the gospel. Christ does not enjoin us to ask them about their election or predestination. He enjoins us to share his story. They lived, he died, he was buried, he came back from the dead, and any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are given a free gift called eternal life, forgiveness of sin, and you begin a relationship eternally living with him. That's what we're supposed to do, not argue about who's elect or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's good. Okay, two more questions. Another big, heavy hitter one. But actually, before we go into that, just a note for those of y'all who are listening. If you are ever listening and you're going, okay, I'm over this question. I don't care. In the show notes, Casey, Casey Wheeler, who's on our In Context team, does an amazing job. But she timestamps every question. So depending on which app you use to listen to the podcast, if you're looking online, whatever, it might be a link out to our website or it might be embedded in the app that you are using, but there will be timestamps for every question. So you can always scrub right forward. And the other thing I'll say about show notes is when Michael's dropping, oh, this book or that book or this article, Casey does a really good job of catching all those and putting those in the show notes. So if you're wondering what was that book that he referenced about, I can't remember, we've named Mary so Evans many books. Or yeah. Lockler and this, or and this one episode, they will all be in the show notes. Okay, the next question was, I think it was an Instagram answer, and it was dispensationalist, and really they were asking, is there any accuracy in this approach? But back us up a little bit. What even is dispensationalism? And let's go from Okay, there. in full disclosure, I are one. So I just want you know to know I do hold to a dispensational view of theology. And I so also, you're going to say there is accuracy. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> or I'm wrong. You know, it's either or. Either it's accurate or I'm wrong. But let me give this preface I know my answer, quote unquote, isn't going to persuade or convince a person who doesn't agree with dispensationalism. I know that. I have friends, uh, well, I call them friends, but I've had one gentleman whose name will remain protected who called me a heretic because I held this. We were at a conference together. Wow. And uh, I had met him. Actually, I'd given him some money for his ministry because I was so impressed. And we met at a conference and I was so eager to meet him. And I went and met the guy. And we were talking and had the best time. And, and he asked me where we went to seminary. I said, Dallas goes, are you a dispensationalist? Just like that. 
<laughs> and he was mad when I walked away. He was telling me a heretic. And then, well, Bummer. did I get my money back? No, I didn't. But anyway, I still love him. He's just wrong. So first of all, let's talk about theology. Theology is the study of God. How are you going to study God? Yeah. It's an inexhaustible subject, even though we just have one book. Think about John Owens. John Owens had a 16-volume set for his systematic theology. That's one book of the Bible, 16 volumes to try to organize it and categorize it. Or think of a one-volume. If you've listened in context, you know I love one-volume theology handbooks. I probably have 15 on my shelf, and I don't know, probably 100 in my Logos library. I love one-volume theologies. Why? Because how do I learn something about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Yeah. You can't do that with Bible study method. Well, you could, but it's going to take, take you a long 300 time. hours. Yeah. But someone else has done the spade work. So think of, most of you probably know, Wayne Grudem. He's been on our program many times. Wayne has a systematic theology. Note the title, systematic theology. It's 57 chapters in the second edition. I think it's north of 1,300 pages. Crazy. And that's not a book people are going to think of John Owen, 16 volumes. Yeah. Grudem trying to put it in one. Yeah. Uh, Lewis Berry Chafer had an eight-volume theology, which I had to read. Um, so <laughs> before we get into dispensation proper, understand theology is the attempt to organize systematically subjects, themes, and doctrines about the Bible. What is God? Who is God? What is a Trinitarian Godhead? What is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? Mm-hmm. What is the Trinity? Mm-hmm. What is the resurrection? What is redemption? What is reconciliation? Those are hard to find just by looking in an English Bible without some help. So theology does this for us. Now, you perhaps have heard about Calvinist theology, Reformed theology, Covenant theology, Armenian, dogmatic Roman Catholic theology. These are labels that tell we're looking at the Bible through a Calvinistic lens, a Reformed lens, a Covenant lens. Make sense? You might have heard the phrase tulip, Mm -hmm. the word tulip, which stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. And so that is a handy pocket way of remembering part of what's called classical Calvinism. I don't think it's a fair way to organize Calvin, but that's one way they organize Calvin. All of these are approaches, and they all have nuances to a particular presupposition, okay? So now, when you use the word dispensationalism, I'm going to argue it is another way of looking at theology. It's another way of doing theology. Now, there are, within the umbrella of dispensationalists, there are all sorts of iterations, just like there are the above theologies I mentioned. There's disagreements between Reformed and Calvinist and Covenant theologians, and there are differences between different dispensationalists. For example, some hold to three, mm-hmm. some hold seven, some nine. There's even 11. I think someone told me there was 13 at one point. I wow. don't know. Uh, there's progressive dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. There's kind of a, a novel phrase, neo-dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. Some of my professors from Dallas moved away to sort of a progressive dispensationalism. So all I'm trying to say before we get into my real precise short answers is this. Every theology uses a system to approach the Bible, to organize it, to explain it, and try to fit it together. Mm -hmm. Every theology is some kind of system to organize, to approach, to organize, explain, and fit together this wonderful 
book. All right. Now, with that, let me give you the reasons I are a dispensationalist. There's five key terms, and then I want to give you two examples of this. So we talk about a hermeneutic. A hermeneutic is the way we read and approach the Bible. So we're doing hermeneutics when we study the Bible. And we do this through five words, normal, grammatical, literal, historical, theological. One more time, normal, grammatical, literal, historical, theological. Normal. What's the normal understanding of those words in the Bible? What does it mean in that context? Grammatical. Using the rules of grammar. There's Hebrew grammar. There's Greek grammar. There's English grammar. Do we have to use the normal rules of grammar? The old sentence about man without her woman is a beast. You've mm-hmm. seen that written on a marker board. Mm-hmm. You could take that several ways. Man without her woman. Woman's a beast. Mm-hmm. Man without her. Woman. Is a, yeah. so, so that's grammar. Literal. And this is where sometimes I think unfairly dispensationalists are accused of being literalists. No, literal means the understanding and meaning of the Bible in the ordinary sense unless it is figurative. So when we say the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the world that he might find those who are truly his. We don't see two eyeballs circle on the planet. We have an image, a metaphorical figurative image of God looking at the earth. Okay, Historical. What did it mean in that historical context? What's going on in the time of Cyrus? What's going on in the time of the Egyptian captivity? What's going on in exile? What's going on historically in the first century with the Herods? Okay, And then theologically, and this goes back to the broader umbrella, a consistent consideration of the whole Bible. Normal, grammatical, literal, historical, theological. It doesn't work to be tulip, and I'm not going to even try and say what it is. <laughs> now, I think that is the best approach and not only reading the Bible, but doing theology. And that is in a thumbnail why I'm a dispensationalist. I'm not a dispensationalist because I think there's a time of law, grace, and kingdom. Those would be three dispensations. I'm a dispensationalist because when I come to the Bible, normal, grammatical, literal, historical, theological, that leads me to being a dispensationalist. The word dispensationalism does not occur in the Bible, just like the word Trinity doesn't occur. Right. Again, keep in mind this is a system. But one of the verses that helps me tremendously, so Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on the earth. That verse is not, a dispensational verse, that verse is spelling out the word administration, this economian, this this idea of God organizing things to the fullness of time, the summing up of all things in Christ. So that would be a thumbnail way of thinking about it. Let me give you, again, law, grace, kingdom, and there's lots of ways to divide these, but we have a period of law in the Old Testament. Um, some would look at, for example, Adam was a dispensation, but it was still law. Don't eat of this one tree. Mm-hmm. He broke it. God didn't change his plan, Mm-mm. but there's a problem now. Mm-hmm. So Adam has consequences from that. So that could be argued. This is a time of law. The Old Testament is all law. Here's the word of God. You fall short. Grace, of course, was taught in the Old Testament, but it wasn't experienced like it was when Christ came. So we have the dispensation of grace, we would say, and then we have the dispensation of the church age, which will fold into the future. So 
Law, grace, not the church age. Law, grace, and kingdom are the one I'm talking talk about. Now, we talk about the church age being you know, where we are now. And again, you can parse these out, three, five, seven, nine, eleven, as apparently. many as you want. But the broad strokes are there was a time of law, there's a time of grace, and then a future kingdom. And that's where Ephesians 1, 10, and 11 tell us. Now, let me tell you real practically the key issues to me that keep me a dispensationalist over other theologies. One is what's called replacement theology. This is very important. Replacement theology is a teaching that the church took the place of Israel. Yeah. And you will find among those many who would call themselves Reformed folks. And again, I'm not mad. I love them. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know they'd hold the same of me, but I'm not mad at them, but they believe in replacement theology. I was at a table, uh, Hannah, I've told this story before in D.C. many, many years ago. Michael Cromartie, a fine Christian man with the Lord now, had a function, and there were uh, maybe three tables of eight or ten pastors, and we're sitting there waiting on this speaker, and you know, you talk about movies and books and whatnot. I had just gotten back from Israel, I think, and I knew these guys were not in my camp, so to speak, and I asked the question, I said, all pastors of churches in Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. I said, how many of you guys have been to Israel? And I think maybe one had. And I said, in the scheme of Scripture, is Israel an important part or is it just piece a piece of dirt. of dirt? Yeah. And they went around the table, and all of them essentially said it was just a piece of dirt. Oh, yeah, wow. Michael Cromartie was sitting right to my left, and he and I had a collegial relationship. And he goes, well, given your parameters, <laughs> he goes, it's more than a piece of dirt, but not much. <laughs> wow. And we laughed about it. And he got up and introduced the speaker. No one asked me, though. Yeah, they didn't want to know. They didn't want to know. That. Well, they knew it already, I guess. <laughs> I was the dispensationalist in the room. I was a skunk. That's replacement theology. That's saying that Israel no longer, quote, matters because Christ inaugurated his church at Pentecost. Now, the problem I have with that goes back to that hermeneutic. What do I do with Deuteronomy chapter 30? Yeah. What do I do with all these unconditional, unilateral covenants that God made with Abraham? You will be a blessing. Mm-hmm. If I look at the Edemic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant, these are unconditional, unilateral promises that God made. In other words, he's going to keep them. He's going to dispense them whether man agrees or not, we might say. Abraham was going to be a blessing whether he cooperated or not, and that's the story of Ishmael. Mm-hmm. Abraham is going to be a blessing to the world. God is not going to globally destroy the earth by water ever again. That's the Noahic covenant. The problem I have with replacement theology is God made promises uniquely to Israel that have not been fulfilled. Mm-hmm. They never fulfilled the entire land in mm-hmm. my my friends who say, yes, they did. And I said, you haven't read Judges chapter 1. Much of the land was left unconquered. So they didn't completely hold it. And if they held it, there's argument. They held it for this little period of time. Going, no, that's not what he meant. He meant they would possess that land permanently. Yeah. And so I just have a real heartache, as you can tell by my voice. Replacement theology, I think, is wrong. Israel plays a role in God's eternal plan. I don't understand all I know about the Jew and about Israel and who is Israel and who is the Jew. I do know this, that little piece of real estate plays an important part in God's program. Christ is born there. There's going to be returned there. Mm -hmm. He's going to reign from there. And you can't wipe that out of the Bible because the church age came along and somehow we say, oh, 
we can replace it. Let me just sum this up. I'm going to come back to two primary issues that I are a dispensationalist. One, the normal, grammatical, literal, historical, theological, hermeneutic. The way we approach the Bible from those lens keeps us understanding how the story unfolds. Secondly, one of the key issues for me is what my friends call replacement theology, that Israel and the church no longer matter. I don't think you can take those covenant promises that God made, the unilateral ones, like the Davidic covenant, there will always be someone on the throne of David, meaning Jesus Christ, that we will always have this new covenant in his blood. You can't say those are changed because we turn the page on a chapter of theology. So replacement theology, hermeneutic, those are two reasons why I maintain dispensationalism is a, a good way of thinking. Okay. Our last question came from Brett and he's basically saying, he says, we know God's power and presence moved and worked through individuals and nations in the line of history of the Hebrew nation because we have the scripture. Was he also moving and working as mightily through people of other people groups and other parts of the world at the same time? If God did, do those other people of other people groups, do their ancient writings line up with ours as to his nature, etc.? Actually, it's a great question, Brett. Thanks. I mean that. Number one, Scripture is comprehensive but not exhaustive. Sure. And Scripture gives us all we need for a life of faith, but it does not tell me how to fix my lawnmower. Yeah. So it's comprehensive but not exhaustive. Now, we know from the Minor Prophets, for example, and let's keep in mind the ancient Near East was a smaller world than we might understand. So when you think about the Middle East today, it's such a vast piece of geography. They were very closely intertwined in those days. So it's not like it is today. And word traveled fast. So think about the minor prophets. These cultures that they had to deal with bled into one another. So if we think of Jonah and going down to Nineveh, it's a bit of a trek, but they knew each other. Mm-hmm. The Assyrians and the Jews knew one another. The Babylonians and the Jews knew each other. So certainly in the ancient Near East, the idea of a monarchy, that there was a king in these places, well, the Jews don't have a king. Well, they'll get one later on. You know that story. If we look at Joshua, the beginning of the promised land possession, he sends spies into the land. And this is a repeat from chapter 13 of Numbers, the epic failure called Kadesh Barnea where they send the spies in and they come back and the 10 give a bad report. And who the two? Caleb and Joshua. We always know the two. Nobody can name the 10. <laughs> Joshua and Caleb come back and they say, no, the Lord will give us the land. They're giants, but we can do this with the Lord. Nope. So that failure sends them into a terrible wilderness wandering. Joshua is going to repeat the story. He sends spies into Jericho. He's not stupid. Well, who do the spies encounter? A woman named Rahab with the terrible epitaph, Rahab the harlot. And she is living on the city wall, and that would be like in the marketplace or in the gate, if you will. The walls in those days were a little hard to understand, but they were very wide. You could have shops and houses on top of these walls. And she's living in the walled area of the city of Jericho. And when the spies come in, she knows they're Jews, and she knows about their God. How? Rumor word, story, travel in the ancient world. So with that in mind, and we have a few other stories we could look at, but we've got examples of where non-Israelites knew about this Jewish God in the ancient Near East. Now, to go beyond the Bible, one of the oldest religious texts is called the Gilgamesh epic. 
it's not very long, actually. It's a very short read, but it's very complicated. The Gilgamesh story is about ancient Babylon, and this predates the Bible's record in some respects. This would be a southern part of Mesopotamia. We're talking about ancient Near East, so this is a different geography. And the story of Gilgamesh is about his quest for immorality. And there are a lot of parallels with the book of Genesis. The most interesting one is the flood account. It's almost parallel to Genesis chapter 6 through 9. In fact, I remember years ago, Hannah, teaching the flood back in uh, Grand Prairie of all places. And I came across uh, James Montgomery Boyce had a commentary and he referred to 300 cultures have global flood stories that have nothing to do with Judaism. Wow. So, you know, that's anecdotal, but there were these records and Gilgamesh is the oldest one we have in print, we might say a religious text. So I think I understand your question asking, you know, was God working in cultures and subcultures we don't know about? The answer is probably. The difference is those stories weren't the word of God. Those stories weren't the Bible. So the Gilgamesh epic is an important document, just like we might say some of the Egyptian hieroglyphs are important documents to understand a culture and a time, but they weren't a biblical narrative. Mm -hmm. So I do think we underestimate how quick the word traveled in antiquity because we're so dependent on internet technology. Right. When I went to Nigeria in 1992 or three, I forget what year, with my friend Musa Asaki, who's now with the Lord, we drove in to a village, and it's a very primitive village. They had wells. They had power, but maybe an hour or two a week. Sure. And the well was still the center of getting your water, and they had an area to wash their clothes. I'm going to say there were four or 5,000 people in Musa's home village, wow. uh, about half Muslim. And we drove in, Musa his uh, friend and his friend's wife, and we were the four of us driving in. And of course, I'm white as a light bulb, and this is, you know, African culture. And I stick out literally in every respect. I'm tall. And we pull in this village, and hundreds of people ran to the car. And Musa had an exchange with them, and they started singing, Welcome, Michael, welcome. <laughs> And they followed us into the middle market, and we got some suye and some different sweet breads and talked for a few minutes, and we got back to Musa's compound. And within moments, the village was a fire that a Baturi white man had come to the village. Uh-huh. And I thought, okay, this is how antiquity was. Yeah, yeah. No phones, no internet, no newsprint, no daily you know, post office where you go see something posted on a bulletin board. Word of mouth traveled through those 4,000, 5,000 people that a Baturi had shown up Mm -hmm. in their village Mm -hmm. in a matter of moments. Mm -hmm. So that's just illustrative to me of how the story could spread and whether it was Jesus when he's healing people in the Galilee area, turning water into wine, whether he is uh, multiplying loaves and fish, those stories spread like wildfire. Yeah, yeah. So we underestimate how the word of God traveled. Mm. Okay, well, maybe this has gotten your wheels spinning. You can email your questions to question at michaelincontext.com or you can call us at 615-281-9694. We would love to hear from you. 
We need someone to call us and do like the electronic muffle their voice. (laughs) (laughs) We do often. I'll have people write in and say, please don't use my name at all. Or they'll call in and say, but you can't use this voicemail. Do not use my voice. So we will keep you anonymous if you do not want to be known. We're we're not trying to get you. And the best thing you learned about on today's broadcast was if you get tired of listening to me, just look at the (laughs) timestamps and go to the next question. (laughs) Well, with that, we will see y'all later. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.